The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, one of the issues that has become relatively fascinating, actually, over the past few years is our ability to look at impacts on human environments by climate and by human activity. And one of the areas in which this type of research is now making a mark in our understanding of archaeology is in the uh, period of the Crusades. And the Crusades, I'm sure most of you know, were a very, very dynamic period in European history. They changed the course of human events in a very, very significant way. And because of, of human ecology and some of the advances that have been made in studying human environments, we are now starting to get a picture of how environmental impacts have changed over the course of time and how people have a tremendous amount to do with the uh, impacts on on environments as a result of their own sets of activities. That coupled with the critical impacts of climate gives us uh, a very intricate story on the human environmental dynamic, its interaction, and how it's proceeded. Now, we've known this in prehistoric studies for very many years, but now our levels of sophistication are such that we are able to actually integrate historical records with uh, environmental proxy information, uh, data accumulated from ecological records like pollen, like vegetation studies, and geomorphology and the types of things that we have talked about in earlier earlier episodes of this show, and uh, the two guests that I have today have actually focused this kind of approach on uh, the human ecology, if you will, of the Crusade period. And I am very excited to discuss this topic because of its uh, the, the period's critical impact on the course of European and essentially Western history since the 13th century. My guests today are both from the University of Reading in the UK. Um, Dr. Alexander Brown. Um, Dr. Alexander Brown is a research assistant who uh, has interests center on the applications of paleoecology 
as a tool for investigating the human environmental dynamic over the course of the Holocene. He has over 10 years of experience working in intertidal and wetland landscapes, essentially in the UK, and looking at human impacts on the prehistoric landscapes of the Severn Estuary in the UK, which is a long-term uh, series of uh, investigations that take us from the Mesolithic through the Neolithic coastal environments of the UK. And uh, the founder of this project, of the Crusader Project, is my second guest, Dr. Alex Pluskowski, who uh, is a lecturer in archaeology again at the University of Re Reading. Uh, Dr. Pluskowski teaches the archaeology of later medieval Europe and crusading. His interests include exploring ecological diversity across medieval Europe and is focused on zooarchaeology and interdisciplinary perspectives of human animal relationships. Uh, gentlemen, I'm glad to have you in the program. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Pluskowski, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about the background of this project, how it was initiated, how you established a research design for the project, and how it has been proceeding in a very general sense. So in uh, 2006, I was doing a, a broad ecological survey of, of Europe that looked and focused on uh, responses to animals in different cultural contexts to see if there's uh, variation across medieval Europe and if people are responding to different environments or if different cultural uh, trends are responsible for, for the diversity of, of responses that we saw. So I was looking at lots of different case studies and one of the case studies was the headquarters of the Teutonic Order, the castle in Malbork in northern Poland, uh, formerly called Marienburg. And they had a large assemblage of animal bones from their excavations that had been conducted by the University of Warsaw. No one was looking at this material, so I managed to get some funding to get a team out there to start looking at this. And while we were in the process of, of, of analyzing these bones, we started asking ourselves this question, how are we, you know, how are we going to place this, this data within a, a broader cultural context? And it, the more we looked into it, the more we realized that the construction of castles like the castle in Melbourg actually had a significant impact on how the landscape was being used and on the whole process of colonization associated with castle construction in the Baltic, which took place during the Crusades. So this slowly gathered momentum. As we were doing these pilot studies, uh, we started including uh, palynological perspectives, and this is where, where Alex Brown started doing some work um, within what then emerged into a cohesive project. And we, we started to, to look for sites and, and partners across the whole of the Eastern Baltic that had been affected by the Baltic Crusades and by the process of colonization. And eventually we were able to put together a, a, a grant application to the European Research Council. And so from 2010, we've been running um, this project uh, across the Eastern Baltic in, in Poland, uh, Latvia, uh, Estonia and Lithuania that's been comparing the impact of all, is, all of these different castles. So we're very much, I suppose, approaching it from the, the perspective of the colonizers within this region uh, following the Crusades. Um, but the project has, has developed into a, a massive, massive network uh, of, of different specialists and different teams. And we are in the final year of the project. So everything will finish by the end of this year and we'll have our, our outputs and publications ready over the next couple of years. So that's the sort of I, I, general background. 
I, I think what, what you've put your finger on is something very, very intriguing. I mean, uh, as as you were discussing this, what what struck me as this as if this project really started out on a very well, let's call it a smaller scale. You are looking yep. at the castles themselves. You're looking at impacts on let's call it the micro environment of the castle, and how that immediate landscape changed. If I'm reading you correctly, and then all of a sudden you're expanding this to other castles, and then you're looking at broader perspectives, series of castles, and the landscapes immediately around them, and then presumably you get into uh, reconfigurations and reassessments of settlement geography related to the castles and then ultimately to the crusaders is that how it worked yeah that's that's sort of correct in terms of the scales that we've been looking at because each castle is associated with an administrative territory or what is called a commandery and so everything has to be related to this broader landscape, which, as you say, includes the settlement pattern and how the landscape's being used, how how the castle is is reorganizing and siphoning the, the natural resources of the landscape, which is a, effectively a fundamental part of the process of colonization. Uh, so yes, that, that that is effectively how we how we shifted from the from a, an assemblage within an individual castle to a much broader interregional landscape based study. So. So where do, when do you come to the conclusion that basically the unifying thread here is the Crusader venture? I mean, I can understand that it's the period because the chronology would say that. But at what point do you sort of go into a reconstruction that expands from human ecology into a major period that, that clearly affected uh, everything in, in, in uh, European and, in this case, Eastern European history? Right. Well, in the pre-Crusade period, what is referred to as the Late Iron Age in the Eastern Baltic and, and the early medieval period in Poland, we have in this region uh, a series of tribal societies um, that are relatively small scale and appear to have had uh, an, an interesting but relatively limited impact on the landscape, on the environment. We do not have uh, intensive uh, utilization of environmental resources until the Crusades, and the Crusades are an attempt to bring this entire region within the sphere of Christian Europe, and they are accompanied by a, a process of colonization that sees, for the first time, the appearance of towns, um, the, the mass population of the countryside, and, of course, all of the provisioning requirements that need, uh, that are required to support this type of colonization. So um, the, the process of crusading itself, of course, it has a very brutal and detrimental impact on the indigenous societies of the Eastern Baltic, but it results in uh, a complete reconfiguration of, uh, of the cultures uh, and the, the populations, the ethnicities of the Eastern Baltic. So this is why the crusading period is important. It's, it's, it's if you like, an, an event horizon in the cultural and, as we see, ecological history of northeastern Europe. I want to get into that in a minute, but but at some point, I'm guessing, and, and walk me through this, because this is really a very uh, strong phenomenon that, that I'm seeing. At some point, you must have had what we would call a eureka moment when you're saying, you know what, <laughs> these, these kinds of excavations, these kinds of explanations are really sort of starting to converge around a much larger geopolitical problem for that period, which is the Crusades themselves. At some point, you come to that realization 
because my guess is that when you started doing this, you didn't know that. No, no, we had we were very disconnected from these broader processes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 that's what I'm saying. So when did you get the Eureka moment? I think you know, we all, as archaeologists, we're all really interested in that, and so are other people. Oh, that's a good question. Maybe with I mean, with the with actually when we started working in the in the landscape. Right. And if I if I hand over to Alex to describe very quickly how our pilot work actually led to this, because we we did some coring within the vicinity of Melbourne Castle to look at the broader change in the landscape. And yeah, so I think when I when I was first asked to be involved in this project, which would have been back in 2007, 2008, it very much focused on uh, recovering environmental data from the moats from the castles to use that to reconstruct the immediate the immediate landscape of, of uh, Malbork Castle. And uh, when we went out to Poland uh, to do this field work, it became very apparent that we also needed to take samples for pollen analysis from the surrounding landscape. Uh, very often when we're dealing with contexts like uh, moats within castles, they, they're, they're accumulating over uh, incredibly short periods of time. We may be only dealing with one or two or three centuries of, of material, usable material, um, and they don't predate the point at which the castle was constructed. So it's very difficult for us, therefore, to get a handle on how the castle is is altering existing uh, vegetation environments. So at that point, it became very uh, it became obvious that we needed to situate this within a, a broader spatial landscape, but also a broader uh, chronological landscape. And and many of the deposits that we've we've been coring um, may have been accumulating over several thousands of years, but we've been very much focusing on the the, the upper parts of these deposits that may cover the last one thousand or two thousand years so that we can look at processes of vegetation change that are occurring uh, throughout the, the migration period that, that followed the, the collapse of the Roman Empire, um, and, and then through um, the, the immediate centuries leading up to the Crusades, and even to the period following the Crusades. So we're able to, to really to, to get a, a good idea of how vegetation environments are, are modified over a much longer period of time. Um, Alex Brown, yeah, with with that information, which I, I think uh, a lot of our listenership needs to know about, is that when we do these types of excavations, uh, in, in a sense, irrespective of the scale that we're doing it, we do have environmental people who try to reconstruct landscapes, whether or not they're castles, whether or not they're agricultural fields. Um, but that's the kind of thing we do. And, and you started out, if I understand you correctly, just trying to understand understand what the footprint of the castle was and how it changed the landscape in the immediate vicinity of the castle is that what you were doing that was that was how it initially developed but i think that given that these castles are part of their of, of larger administrative territories their their reach extends beyond the immediate footprint of the castle so it was it was vital really to take a a broader landscape approach to this because they're they're organizing and exploiting um, various parts of that environment over a much larger area so we're taking multiple pollen cores from each of these administrative territories to understand how that exploitation of the landscape might vary within relatively small areas of the landscape right 
And but but the immediate coring. I mean, you, you did you set up the core the coring program as a series of of transects, say with the castle in the middle, or how extensive was the initial coring exercise? The the initial coring exercise was literally just um, some initial prospection within the moats of the castles to see whether first material you know suitable material was preserved, and then to take a core from from a moat. Um, and then it was very much identifying suitable deposits within the surrounding landscape. Um, so we're very much res- restricted by where we can concord, whether that's lakes or, or peat deposits. Right. So, uh, but, but uh, at the beginning, you're looking at clearly a what we we would call an anthropogenic feature, which is the moat that surrounds the castle, and you're looking yes. at the base, and you're trying to find the the contact between uh, presumably organic deposits and then the base of the moat, and then you're just expanding it from there radially. Uh, in in some senses, yes, but it's but you're you're restricted by where where the deposits are, are preserved. Of course, I mean it, you. Sometimes you can't get peat deposits that are relatively close to the castles, but the idea is that you exploit a variety of different deposits that are both near to the castles, away from the castles, but they might be near to, to medieval uh, rural settlements, perhaps some other deposits that are within areas of woodland that we think may have survived during the medieval period, and, and others that are in, in areas of agricultural land that may be a kilometre or two from any contempor- uh, contemporary medieval settlement. So the idea is to get, in, in an ideal situation, a variety of deposits in, in contrasting uh, landscape types, and it's through that that we can try and get a handle on how different parts of the landscape may have been been used, whether there are specific parts that were used because uh, they were managing woodland or some areas that were cleared for, for agricultural land, for example. Okay. Uh, we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion on the human ecology of the Crusader period, for lack of a better broad description, after these words. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. 
Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we are discussing the human ecology of the Crusader period for lack of a better sort of overarching theme on what the topic of today's program is. And in the course of our discussion, uh, what we're finding is that the range of archaeological exploration and interpretation um, with a very, very significant ecological focus allows you to expand not only the data set that you're trying to focus on from the out- outset, but also you are able to expand your problem and research domain to scales that you didn't even imagine. And these two gentlemen the, uh, from the University of, Re- of Reading, Dr. Alex Brown Dr. Alex Pluskowski, are sh- classic cases of of expanding the reach of archaeological interpretations to the scales that that we really couldn't that i i from what i'm gathering they even couldn't have imagined when they started out the project so uh alex pluskowski tell me um how how this thing progressed i mean you've been doing this for five years now yeah well um we've been running this for four years but the pilot projects have gone on for a few more years so i guess since 2006 which is when we initially began the first pilot work so so tell me in a, in a broader sense and, and this is something i think a lot of people want to know how you refocused and expanded the reach of your research policy and your research plan as you were getting more and more information initially about the castles, the moats, and then all of a sudden you say, let's look at, let's call the meso-environment, the general environment around the castle, and of course you're using uh, a series clearly of ecological experts, including Alex Brown and presumably geomorphologists, etc., to to do this kind of work. Walk us through that, if you will. Yeah, so um, we chose uh, about 12 castles and their territories, their commanderies for this project. And we've been, we've been looking at both micro and meso scales, which has involved targeted excavations within the castles to recover the full suite of environmental data. And then a whole series of, of cores taken from the surrounding landscape, as well as additional data from settlement uh, excavations, so on and so forth. So we've, we've taken about 
50 cores, 50 pollen cores, 50 yeah. pollen cores from, from across the Eastern Baltic. And in terms of the specialisms, I mean, we have, apart from Alex, who, who is the, the palynologist and the main research associate on the project, we have a plant macro specialist. We have two geoarchaeologists who are working with geochemistry and micromorphology. We have three zooarchaeologists who are working with different types of animal bone, including fish bone. Uh, and we have three historians who are looking at the written sources relating to the castles and the use of the landscape. Um, and then we have a whole consortium of individuals working with, with insects, parasites. Uh, we even have some isotope and DNA collaborations going. So there's, a, there's quite a large network of people looking at data extracted from the castles and from their surrounding territories. So, but, but what you've done here, and I, I think this is, uh, I think the big leap that you're making here is one that I didn't hear you address for a second, because you're, you're, you're talking about expanding from the micro to, uh, to the mesoscale, but you're, you're getting into the macro scale at some point here, really in a big way, or are you stopping at the mesoscale and leaving it for future, uh, for future projects to really address the entire question of 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 more general regional impacts on the landscape or or do you, do you think you're moving in that direction as well no i think we're definitely moving in that direction because we initially thought maybe we should just focus on you know a, a few sites and then and do very detailed studies but then we wouldn't get a sense of the regional picture the interregional picture and one thing that happened after the crusades was the creation of uh, of, of new Christian European states across this entire region, run largely by the same institution, um, by, by the Teutonic Order, this military theocracy. And so what we wanted to do was to see whether we have the same response from this institution across the entire region. So it made sense to, to take case studies, I mean, almost a transect across the whole of Eastern Baltic, rather than just focusing on on, on, on a couple of very localized sites. So, yeah, we were aiming high, you know. So you are aiming high. I mean, and it seems like you're getting there. So let me ask you this, Alex Brown. Now, uh, you say you've done 50 pollen cores. Yes. <clears throat> okay, let me just explain and, and take this back for a second to the listenership. Um, what this means is that there is a... Um, systematic series of investigations of ancient pollen, which is a proxy measure of environmental change, and it's typically undertaken in lakes and marshes. And um, from what I'm gathering, you've done 50 of these, and presumably you've run them across the entire reach of the castles that you've studied. And how big of an area is that? Um, well, we've, these, these 50 cores are taken across the entire eastern Baltic, so within northeastern Poland, um, uh, Latvia, and within southern Estonia, focusing on these, these administrative areas. Okay. And, yeah, go ahead. Um, and they, these 50 are then, are then whittled down, if you like, to a, a smaller set of studies that then go through to, to full analysis. So this, that 50 really represent the, the process of assessment over the course of the last um, four or five or, or, or six years. And in sure. some cases, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I guess the question I'm having, and this is, this is fascinating, 
is presumably you're going to find replicating sequences and, and signatures that are showing you presumably um, a, a sort of a common impact of the landscape at a certain point in time, say when the Crusader period just uh, took off. Are you seeing like a transition, say, from a natural sedimentary sequence to one that's more anthropogenic in nature? In, in a sense, yeah. It's, it's clearer in, in some parts of the landscape than others. So within uh, present-day northern, northeastern Poland, within the, the area of the Vistula, we're, we're seeing a very consistent picture between our pollen studies that is uh, reflecting a broad process occurring in the landscape. Um, that actually begins relatively early in about the 8th century AD. And then you, it's from that point that you see uh, increase in human impact in the pollen sequences and particularly marked uh, during the Crusades. So there's a significant alteration in the vegetation environment. And we see, we see peaks and troughs in, in particular plants consistently in these sequences. So that, that, that aids us in our initial process of assessment because they're, they're, they're already reasonably well dated in this area. So they act as sort of chronological horizons. So we can, we can tell if certain sequences are missing the medieval period entirely. So that, that's enabled us to very much focus our efforts on particular sets of cores. Um, it's slightly harder in other parts of the landscape because we don't have those same chronological marker horizons and, and the history of the Crusades and, and the colonization that follows them is very, very different. So it's, Broad patterns are apparent, but if we want to talk about more nuanced changes in, in particular parts of the landscape, then, then it requires um, a, a slightly different approach. But then again, you're getting into this entire question of scale, where you go back from the general and then focus in on the specific to, say, the mesoenvironmental scale, and then you're, you're able to see, well, in this particular segment or in this particular local locality, these are the types of things that are going on. And you use, I'm assuming from what you just said, that AD8800 is some kind of a marker horizon for you. Um, yeah, that's when we see we start to see a significant decline in in tree pollen. Um, so it follows the the Great Migration period, that that period of of four centuries or so following the end of the Roman period, where you get a, a significant collapse in, in in settlement and social structure and a lot of um, migration, and you see a significant regeneration of of woodland. So to all intents and purposes, before the, the 8th century, you're dealing with a, a heavily wooded landscape. And then you start to see a decline in this woodland over the course of two or three centuries um, until about, about 1000, 1100 AD. And then it's really after that that you start to see um, these, these anthropogenic indicators picking up in pollen diagrams. Um, and, and the Crusades, if you, if you like, represents sort of the high point of that anthropogenic impact in, during the medieval period. So, Alex Pluskowski, tell us a little bit about that. What, what are you seeing? What are the larger processes of refashioning the landscape that, that Alex Brown is, is providing data with? And, and you're essentially trying to uh, in, integrate this into some kind of a comprehensive uh, model of what's really going on across the landscape and what humans are doing. 
Well, the process of colonization associated with the establishment of castles, of course, dramatically increases the population of the region. And this in turn has implications for provisioning requirements, for fuel, for building materials. Uh, so you start to have the exploitation of woodland on a massive scale and the exploitation of the landscape for, for cultivation, for uh, for the production of fodder to feed huge quantities of livestock, particularly horses, that play a, a very important role in the whole crusading infrastructure. So you start to see the beginning of a very intensive use of a landscape to support the, the infrastructure of the crusader states that are established after the, the indigenous territories are conquered. Uh, and then what subsequently happens is that this entire region becomes plugged into the North European trading network uh, run by the Hansa, um, which is a German-speaking trading uh, culture that slots in very easily into the Crusader states and, of course, results in the production of a massive surplus. So you start to see um, the exploitation of woodland, uh, the production of surplus grain, um, the intensive husbandry of animals geared towards export, uh, and this in turn has, has a dramatic impact on the landscape. So one of the big benefits that you have here, of course, is that you have a written record to some degree, and you are plugging in many of the details from the geoarchaeological and palynological and interdisciplinary records that to some degree uh, confirm these trends that are documented. My question to you is what kind of information is presented in the written record and how does it vary in many cases from what you're actually discovering in the scientific recovery met methods that you're using for hard data accumulation? Well, we have two types of written sources. The first type of narratives of the Crusades that are written by members of the, of the military orders, especially the Teutonic Order. And they, they give you an insight into uh, the, the types of castles that are constructed, the role of a horse, um, a sketch of the environment being encountered by the Crusaders. But they're very generic and, uh, and sure. full of literary tropes. And then we have the, the more detailed documentary sources, but these tend to be from the later period. So... And they tend to be fragmentary. They're accounts of uh, what's kept in castle cellars or stables or what villages are required to provide in terms of wild fur, furs, pelts, uh, grain. So tax records, if you like, um, but very fragmentary, very detailed uh, and very patchy. Nonetheless, when, when they do appear, they're incredibly rich. Uh, and yes, they, they, they don't always add up with the archaeological or the paleoenvironmental data. So it's quite interesting when we have conflict between these two, two sources. But generally speaking, they support our understanding of the castles as these siphoning centers for natural resources. They collect um, produce, agricultural produce, and animal resources on a level that is unprecedented in, in prehistory. Um, and, and the written sources give us some very specific windows into that. So let me ask you again uh, about that, because it's, it's very fascinating. If we were to sort of boil it down to basics, let's assume that, and again, this is an exercise that I think has some merit to it when, we, when, when lay people try to understand what the, the, the ultimate scope of interdisciplinary archaeological projects can do. I mean, you're starting with the castle at the center 
of let's call it the the universe or the local or or micro universe of of the of a particular area how far out does the impact extend in other words for this let's just say the sustenance of a single castle um how how extensive is 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 the uh, the catchment of a single castle or is it too blurry at the outer ends to say well you know one's running into it like another castle or another administrative area um no these castles had very carefully defined boundaries which were of course disputed uh and and there are lots of boundary changes over over the middle ages right. But um, they could, I mean, they could be as small as, you know, within an area of 20 to 30 kilometers, or they could extend down to maybe 70, 80, 90 kilometers in some of the longer commanderies that stretch to the Lithuanian frontier. So the, the territories vary quite dramatically. And that's been one of the interesting things is to look at these different types of, of spaces, um, depending on the, on, on the castle and, uh, and where it's located. So I mean, is this is a 90-kilometer radius from the castle? Is that what? No, no, no. In, in these particular cases, we're talking about long, thin strips that extend from I the castle see. down. Okay. Yeah, which which, okay. which has been an, uh, the organic development of uh, of the territory as a result of how the region was conquered. Um, they just basically kept extending and extending and extending the territory as more of it was annexed. Okay, I, I understand that. Okay, we'll be back and uh, have a, another expansive discussion on uh, the interdisciplinary reach of archaeology for effectively reconstructing our ideas of, of the Crusader period and the effect of landscape and human changes and their interaction across Eastern Europe. And we'll be back after these words. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood 
hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with a very phenomenally interesting discussion on the human ecology of the Crusader period in Eastern Europe. And my two guests, Dr. Alex Brown and Dr. Alex Pluskowski, have been engaging in a multi-year interdisciplinary project to expand our understanding of the human environmental dynamic during the Crusader period. Alex Pluskowski, I'd like to ask you, as as you're going along and, and explaining all these uh, very complicated um, adaptive strategies that clearly occurred over the course of this period, what is there some kind of an inter- administrative, if we will, if you will, uh, adaptation or, or, or series of adaptations that you're seeing for each of these castles that's common to the Crusader period. What, what's going on in a larger sense? What are people doing? Are they all in service to the lords of the castle? And if so, what, what's the scale of that? What's the scale of agricultural production? What's the scale of actually the infrastructure itself that's sustaining the administrative center itself? Um, well, okay, so we have contrasts between the two sides of the Baltic. And in the southern side, in, in what is formerly called Prussia, we have much of the indigenous population being destroyed during the Crusades. And so the, the population is replenished by colonists coming in largely from the Holy Roman Empire, but also from Polish-speaking regions. And they begin this process of intensive cultivation. And you, you have to imagine it's like a frontier landscape, um, uh, almost comparable, I suppose, to the, the kind of uh, situation you had later on in, in, in Central and North America. And it's that kind of um, wild frontier mentality that you see right. in these early colonists. And a lot of colonies didn't survive and had to be refounded. I mean, this remained a volatile area. Um, in, in, in further north, in, in Livonia, what is today Estonia and Latvia, much of the indigenous population actually survived. And there you have a very different relationship with the incoming colonists, um, where you have more of a, of a limited development. It takes a lot longer to get the landscape exploited in an intensive and systematic way because the indigenous population basically continues living as it always has done. And so the power relations there are, are a bit more complicated. So we have very contrasting uh, adaptations to the landscape depending on encounters with the indigenous tribal populations. 
were there particular indigenous populations that retained their integrity, that retained their adaptive strategies, that were less affected by the incursions of the colonists? Yeah, yeah. Um, through, throughout Livonia, we see a lot of conservatism in technology, in material culture. Um, I mean, people are still using agricultural implements that are reminiscent of Iron Age tools and, and jewelry and through, all the way through into the 17th century, almost in some cases. And of course, the biggest indicator is the failure to Christianize those populations. They remain non-Christian until... The, the early modern, the, the, the later modern period, in many respects, you have a, a syncretic religious system present. Um, so particularly in the regions of Estonia and Latvia, we, we see a lot of a lot of persistence of ing indigenous lifestyles uh, and more of a segregated society. This is very intriguing uh, because it opens up a number of questions that I think a lot of us would be interested in. And, and that scale actually not only is confined to Europe, but would also apply to the New World. For example, what is the Christianization signature across the landscape? Is there such a thing? I mean, what when Christianization becomes this obviously major, major thread across Europe uh, associated with the Crusades. Is there an overarching impact that that has on the landscape, if there is um, such a thing? Well, it, it's in our area, it's particularly striking because the pre-Christian uh, religious systems of the Eastern Baltic were uh, based on the environment, and uh, effectively spirituality was centered on cult sites within natural places, within groves associated with lakes, rivers, animals, so on and so forth. So you have a, a naturalistic uh, uh, religious system, which, of course, if you start affecting the physical landscape, you invariably affect the spiritual landscape. Uh, and we see a lot of variation in how that happens. So we see examples of aggressive destruction of uh, sacred sites, such as sacred groves and, and the uh, the use of, of, of cult sites, and we see examples of tolerance where sacred forests are deliberately allowed to be used by the indigenous population, even though we have the territory under the control of a Teutonic order with a castle. So, so we have a lot of variability. We have a lot of different agency, I suppose, uh, that depends on the, uh, the, the, the zealous agenda of the individual commanders or the individual convents that are running these territories. So it's very interesting. We don't we don't see much of a holistic response, even though, of course, the aim one of the aims of the Crusades was to Christianize the region and to protect Christian converts. But on the ground, it was much more difficult to suppress indigenous lifestyles, um, with some exceptions where we have these deliberate aggressive attempts to do so. And and that brings brings up a very very basic question, and and it seems to me that it would be sort of basic, but uh, and I, I would go to Alex Brown on this. Uh, the assumption being that where there is uh, where there is less Christianization, then when you look at the pollen record, or if you look at this even the sedimentary record, you're seeing less disruption in the natural patterns of vegetation succession, uh, perhaps a, a succession that's more linked directly to climate, less linked to human intrusion. Are you picking this up in the pollen record, Alex Brown? 
Um, yes, yeah, to a certain degree. Um, it's it, In certain cases, it's difficult to disentangle that from the process of colonization course, and course. The, the link with these, these this pan-European trading network run by the Hansa. But we do see significant differences between uh, Prussia and Livonia, so between the uh, the, the, the current Polish area and uh, that area that's present-day Estonia and Latvia. And in and in um, Prussia, what we see around Malbork and and the the commanderies there is very significant and intensive use of the landscape, um, and they're very much heartland landscapes. Uh, they were they were unstable um, prior to that, but when you see the establishment of these castles, they become core areas of the order state. And we see a significant amount of stability and intensity in the land use. As you move towards the, the edge of Prussia, you, you see a significant degree of instability and the, the levels of human impact on the landscape reduce. And associated with that, there's a lower level of colonization. Um, and in the Eastern Baltic, the area where we seem to have a greater sort of indigenous survival, we, we see a, a lower level of colonization and it seems to be restricted largely to the urban environments. And we're not seeing a significant impact on the environment there until actually a century after the Crusades. Um, and, and one of the things that we think may explain that is that it's by the 14th century is when you start to see the real development of the Hanseatic League, you start to see the development of the manorial system. And it's at that point that a lot of these, the agricultural produce, produce, if you like, is no longer just a consumable commodity. It becomes a taxable and a tradable commodity. And it's within that context that we start to see uh, more landscape development in the Eastern Baltic. So we're able to pick that pick out the difference between core heartland areas and frontier areas, places that are more stable, other areas that are more unstable, and see the impact of areas that had more colonization as opposed to those where there was uh, there were more indigenous communities who essentially carried on doing the same thing that they had done before the Crusades until that point where you start to see them taxed. Uh, within the within different um, settlement systems. Well, in the same connection, though, Alex Brown, I, and, and this is something that uh, I think a lot of professionals as well as some lay people would be interested in. You do have another factor here, which is which is obviously the signature of climatics, uh, the medieval warming period, for example. Are you able to pick that out? from the more complex anthropogenic signatures in the pollen record, for example, that you are able to filter out a climate, something that's largely climatically induced versus something that is uh, anthropogenically induced? Mm -hmm. there, there are limited existing studies within uh, the Eastern Baltic looking at uh, climate I would think change. so, right, right. So what we've been trying to do is to add to those but realistically, with a, in, in the context of our project, with a limited uh, number of case studies, um, we, have, we have master's students who are currently working on this issue of whether or not we can detect climate within uh, climate change within our uh, environmental sequences. But the ideal situation for trying to identify climate is to, um, to focus on peat deposits, uh, what we call raised bogs, mm -hmm. that 
basically accumulate under the influence of rainwater uh, rather than groundwater so that they they are effectively uh, responding to changes in in climate and ideally those have to be located f as far away as possible from from any evidence for settlement so in most cases the sequences that we have aren't ideally suited to, to climate studies because the difficulty is trying to filter out the, the anthropogenic signal from the climate signal. So what we're doing is trying to focus our work on a, on a limited number of, of studies where we think that we, we can achieve uh, those, that, that criteria, if you like. Um, but that's very much work that's, that's ongoing. The, the questions that we ask ourselves is whether, um, in the context of the Crusades, whether the Little Ice Age would have actually had a significant impact on these communities. Because in northwestern Europe, this occurs at a time when we see a significant decline in population, right. um, disease, and a lot of social stress. But that's not what we see in the Eastern Baltic at this time. This is a time of population expansion, urban foundations, and colonization. So if we do detect a, a little ice age signal, there's a very real chance that it has a, a limited impact. And in um, on these on these societies at the time. So that's one of the questions that we're really trying to ask ourselves at the moment. We're already dealing with a landscape, particularly in the Eastern Baltic, where we have a significant difference between summer and winter temperatures. So it, it may be that it doesn't have the same impact in the Eastern Baltic that it did in, in northwestern parts of, of Europe. But, but this is where you become uh, really critical. This kind of work becomes... Very, very critical because if you really want to expand this, and I'm not talking about you, you, you guys in particular, but certainly this type of study that you've generated would be incredibly applicable to other parts of Europe. And uh, adopting in some ways an analogous research design to look at whether or not there are pan-European trends that can be somehow put together. Because as you said, uh, Alex Brown, the, the, the filtering is a very difficult mechanism to sort of sort out because uh, mm. of the complexities of the anthropogenic signature. Uh, is anybody else doing this kind of work on at least at the scale that you are do uh, doing it in other parts of Europe? Um, not that we're aware of. There have been been some projects that have um, that have applied the some of the techniques that we're using um, in southern Sweden, for example. There was a project called the Ystad project, but that looked at a a, a specific part of um, southern Sweden within Skåne. Um, there really aren't other projects that are that are that are doing it on this this scale but it's very much applicable to other parts of Europe I mean you're you're seeing broad processes of colonization occurring in the from the 11th century in other parts of Europe and there are interesting questions about whether they're they're undertaking this colonization on the same basis and whether it's having the same impact and, and it would it would enrich the database and and make it a lot more comparable I would you, you would think right away of Western Europe a little bit certainly as being a wonderful uh, test tube or laboratory for doing this uh, laboratory for doing this kind of work because you guys have laid out the foundation for how to do it in a sense and then you could sort of expand the range of interpretation and, and I won't say standardized methodologies even though I assume that by the end of your project you will have some 
some some standardized methodologies for doing this sort of thing. It seems to me that this has very broad ref- ramifications for understanding the relationship between climate change and uh, sociocultural phenomena as well. I hope so. It, it remains to be seen with the climate. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think we've really developed a, a methodological approach to a particular question that we can then apply to different parts of Europe, different parts of the world. In fact, I mean, you know, we're not. I don't think we're just restricted to um, to Europe in in that sense. No, you're not. But if you you know if you want to do it systematically, I mean, you go from the adjacent areas to the adjacent areas to some degree. But I think you're absolutely right. Where is your research going from here, Alex Pulskovsky? Um. Well, I think the, uh, it's interesting what you've been saying, but we have been thinking ahead and that we would like to move on to the other crusading frontiers, which also experienced uh, a process of protracted colonization. So specifically the Holy Land, of course, where the sure, crusades sure. Were, were accompanied by the creation of European principalities and, and, and colonists came along. Uh, and then the Iberian Peninsula, where the, the Reconquista also sees the reorganization of the landscape following reconquest and, and this Christian-Muslim interface that is, is extremely interesting. So I think the, the, that's the next the next two areas that we're already, we have networks and partners in place ready to, to go on and do that. The, working with very different environmental contexts, of course, much more arid. So I don't know uh, whether we'll be able to extract all of the environmental data that we have for the Baltic, but still that's that's part of a challenge. Um, but then it'll be interesting to see how these different frontiers vary uh, from a climate point of view as well, of course. Of course. And uh, the hour has flown by. And I want to thank you both very much for enlightening our listenership on what seems to be really sort of state of the art approaches to looking at the human uh, ecological dynamic, especially for such a critical period in the course of Western civilization. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Alex Brown and Dr. Alex Pluskowski of the University of Reading for participating in the program. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks very thank much. It's been a pleasure. And we will be back again next week with another episode. And thank you so much and good evening. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.